Good morning. Well, welcome you all to uh, Come and Reason Sabbath School. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim, who is not here. <laughs> but um, we all wish him well in his endeavor in Arkansas, and well, we'll welcome him back next Sabbath. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, on your morning, to acknowledge you as our Creator and our Redeemer, and we want to thank you for going to such great lengths to win us back to trust and acceptance, the life, death, and resurrection of your Son on this earth. I want to ask that you guide our study this morning to help us recognize the change that occurred uh, in your servant Paul and help us internalize that. We ask that you continue the same process of changing us as well. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are studying lesson number two in uh, the new quarterly. It's called uh, All Things to All Men. Preaches, Paul preaches to the world. Someone read the memory text for Sabbath's lesson, please. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Okay, I want you guys to think about that for a minute. Uh, we're going to revisit this in Monday's lesson. But uh, over the next few minutes, just mull over in your heads and hearts what, uh, what you think that means. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And then let's move to uh, Sunday's lesson. Let's start there. Someone read for us Acts 11, 19-24, please. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they went to Barnab- and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Okay, thank you, Ashley. From this passage, uh, the quarterly asks, how did the church begin? What, what do we glean from, from what we was just read here? How, how the church was began and under what conditions and circumstances uh, did the, first, the Christian church first uh, begin? Persecution spread them. Okay, so it began under persecution, and Saul was part of that persecution that, at the stoning of Stephen. The uh, followers of Christ were singled out by the Jews to be eradicated. And this backfired on Judaism. And as actually, obviously, it was part of God's plan because it actually spread the word and ended up going to the Gentiles, which had been prophesied by numerous prophets in the Old Testament. Any other insights as to what the kind of atmosphere the first church began under. The church was missionary-minded. They sent Barnabas to help where they heard there was an interest. Okay, good. The, uh, the first church, they were devoted to going out and telling the world about Christ. Were they just out preaching about this guy who came, came down and lived for, on earth for a while and died and then was taken to heaven, or were they preaching something else it's supposed to have more to do with good news uh, God is okay what's what's good news about 
some guy come down from heaven and being crucified and then being resurrected after three days. People knew that the Messiah was expected. Okay. The Jews knew that. Um, they knew that, but they didn't recognize him when he comes. Correct. So. That when, when God came and walked among them, they didn't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? They were too focused on the laws and stuff, too. He's not what they expected. He was not what they expected. What did they expect? King. A king with power. Go ahead, continue. They expected someone to free them from the Roman oppression. Ah. They were looking for something totally different. Exactly. They were looking for a a being of strength, a being of power, a being to... uh, Liberate them from the uh, the yoke of Roman occupation and, and slavery, and essentially they were looking for something for themselves. Yes, well said. They personified him with their selfishness. We can say it's a good thing we're not in danger of doing that today. We know we know better. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that um, the first two groups that were listed, the Sirenes and uh, whatever were the guys that were of the same cultural background that had a synagogue in Jerusalem that had stoned Stephen to make them go out. Mm, thank you. I didn't. I hadn't picked up on that point. If you look at the, it says the, the synagogue of the Cyrenes in the, um, I forget the other town or whatever that was that had that had persecuted him and had taken him out and stoned him was actually the two towns that sent missionaries over to Antioch to. Um, evangelize for the new faith mm. and um, it was the very same cultural foundations that were both violently opposed and quite strongly um, proactive in, in spreading the, the, his, the, the news of his, his good news okay that's good let's get back to the good news what what was it about Christ that there was good news? Well, life-altering. Beg your pardon? The good news is it's life-altering. I mean, it changes your entire course from what you were, debased, depraved, doing everything for, for your own uh, needs and selfishness to being other-centered and uplifting to other people and ultimately coming around to uplift you through Christ. Okay. I agree with you. Everything you said is true. That's not quite what I'm getting at. Maybe I should ask some more, some better leading questions. But their leadership of, of the Jewish nation had put so many burdens upon the people. And Jesus came to set them free, to really acknowledge that God is love. He's, he's not all of this other stuff. Oh, fascinating. Now we're getting somewhere. So Christ came to reveal that God was not a God of arbitrary rules. God was not a God of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. God was not an unforgiving God. And and in fact, God loved humanity so much that he was willing to give up his own life in order that humanity might live. And as Alan said, this this differed so much from the God that the or the Messiah that uh, the Jews were expecting. 
that they didn't recognize him. Okay, if you if you had lived in a, and some of us do, if you live with a concept of God, who's a God who's waiting to throw a lightning bolt at you when you when you make a mistake, or when you step out of line, or if you don't acknowledge Him as the supreme ruler or the supreme being, or whatever, if you live with a concept of God like that, and someone comes along and says, well, "Wait a minute, that's not." That's not the God I know. How do we react to that? Do some of us consider it great news? Think, oh, wow, what a relief. This is great. And do some of us say, I don't agree with you. I want to rebel. Heresy. Heresy, yes. You need to be taken out and have your mind changed for you. We'd be quick to pick up stones, I'm correct. Some of us would, yes. I'm afraid you're right. The towns, I guess, when you look at the Jewish culture at that time, the, the Jews had been spread all across the Mediterranean by persecution of their own. Mm-hmm. You know? And here they were in, in towns in Egypt, they were in towns of northern Africa, they were, they were in Rome and other places. You know, when Paul went around, he went to, to synagogues that were the Jews. And here you have these little enclaves of persecuted people who were waiting for the Messiah who never had recognized the Messiah and the thought that the whole focus of their culture had been realized should have been good news to them themselves regardless if talking about the Gentiles or whatever else but as Jewish people this was a wow Something that we've been looking forward all this time has finally come to pass. Or, just like the Jews who, who killed Christ and Stephen or whatever, mm-hmm. oh, oh no, he's not, and so it's a polarizing event, but still, this was, this was good news just from a cultural standpoint, too. It, it should have been, yes. Let's, let's think about current, present-day religions. There's a common theme that runs through nearly every one of them. Anybody know what it is? Peace, God. God requires blood for forgiveness. That may be running through most of Christianity, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking all world religions Hinduism, Islam, etc. Nearly every world religion is expecting a Messiah, some sort of, quote, Savior. And the Jews are still waiting on their Messiah. Are we not in danger today of the, the same thing occurring? of expecting a, a Savior to come and, and deliver us uh, and not recognizing it when it comes. Uh, we, we as Adventists have an understanding that Satan is going to produce a mass deception on the inhabitants of the earth and appear as Christ himself. And he's going to say most of the right things. And he's going to perform miracles uh, and the scripture says if it were possible the very elect will be deceived so don't we have a duty to internalize for ourselves the type of God that God really is so that we can be prepared to recognize a false one when when it appears okay Um, and this is kind of this kind of moves us on to the next thing I want to focus on is when Paul had his Damascus Road experience, it was abrupt, it was instantaneous, it was 
life-changing. He saw the very presence and glory of God, and it blinded him for three days. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and, and he was convicted of the error of his ways. And so Paul internalized this. Paul could go out and preach a message of change. He could go out and basically, he could go out and give his testimony. And then let the Holy Spirit do its work. Let's continue on with a few verses beyond the passage that Ashley read for us. Read, someone read Acts 11, 25, and 26. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year that as assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay, thank you. The lesson asks, why do we think Barnabas chose Paul to help him? Most of the early Christian church was afraid of Paul, and rightly so. Was there anything special about Barnabas that um, made him seek Paul out? And Isn't it true that, that news of his conversion, quote-unquote, had gone around to various uh, believers, but he had also, Paul had also studied and really, you know, went in depth into this new experience that he'd had for a period of years, as I understand it. Wasn't it two or three years? I can honestly say that I don't know. It looks like from the scenario, though, that he stayed in Damascus or uh, and Arabia for a period of three years or so. Mm-hmm. Then he went off back up. He was persecuted in, in Jerusalem when he went up there to be with Peter. And he disappeared and went up back to his hometown. You know, they, they, he saw a vision in Jerusalem, and then he, he scampered back to his hometown. And he was there for years. And you don't hear anything about him until Barnabas shows up to grab him out of obscurity. Okay. So do we think that by then, word had gotten out that Paul was legit? He wasn't just a spy? He wasn't a wolf in sheep's clothing, as it were? I think he probably heard about Paul's ministry. Paul was up, you know, away from Jerusalem, ministering, etc. Bright guy, well-trained. Why wouldn't you go after him? Okay, fair question. I want everyone to bear in mind that I don't have the answer to this. And, you know, Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of insight into Barnabas's upbringing. Um, perhaps Barnabas had had a an experience, not necessarily a Damascus Road experience, but perhaps Barnabas had experienced the transformation of his own life by internalizing the, the life of Christ and allowing the healing work of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps he wanted to just meet with another brother who had who had experienced the same thing that he had. Ashley. Right below that question, it says, Acts is full of surprising events. Saul the persecutor becomes Paul the missionary. The gospel of salvation becomes good news for all, not just for the Jews. And now Paul ministers to a church established indirectly as a result of his persecution. So do you think that maybe Barnabas had that knowledge, knowing that maybe these churches that they were going to minister to had resulted because of Paul's persecution, or Saul? And so maybe having Paul accompany him, maybe that would have some effect if he was the one that initially started the churches. Another valid point. You, yep, that, that may that may have played a role in it as well. Um, what better what better witness to the churches that ended up having to scatter because of this man's persecution and to bring him back in 
and say, I'm sorry, I was mistaken. This is what Christ has done in my life. That's uh, that's an excellent point. I hadn't considered that. Paul definitely had a story he could tell. Exactly. His past. Yes. And here the gospel had changed his life dramatically. Right. Is that a lesson for us? If we are witnessing to our co-workers or to our neighbors or to strangers or to other Christians, shouldn't we have evidence of Christ's healing in our own life? Wouldn't that be a good first step? As opposed to telling them about the state of the dead or having a bumper sticker that says the seventh day is the Sabbath because God never changed it. Uh, might that be a more effective witness? My apologies to everyone who has that bumper sticker, by the way. <laughs> or taking out billboards that says, you know. They were healed and they wanted possessed of a demon and, and Christ healed him. He wanted to go with Christ and he said, no, you stay here and just tell others what I've done for you. Exactly. Ask any of us to do. Exactly. And then, this next part is, is where sometimes we as Adventist Christians drop the ball a little bit. We need to let the Holy Spirit do its work. It's up to us to, to reveal to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers the change that Christ has wrought in our lives. And then we let the Holy Spirit do its work. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict these people, uh, these other people. It's not our job to point out the mistakes that they're making or to list their, quote, sins uh, and and uh, bear them out for them. It, the Holy, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them of of the change that needs to occur in their lives. I think that we often go overboard a little bit in pointing out people's shortcomings and things like that. That's the personal soapbox. We'll revisit that later. All right, Monday's lesson. Back to this text. I've become all things to all men, so that by uh, all possible means I might save some. What does that mean? Meeting people where they are and taking on their personal culture and their personal ways of worshiping and then meeting them at that level and presenting the truth in a way that they can accept it. Nice. And the other insights? I mean, did, did Paul become a pagan? No, but he... To meet with pagans? Well, he meet with them, but he didn't... I mean, he presented the message on the level that they could understand rather than using scripture. <clears throat> he did. We'll examine that uh, in a little bit. Did Paul dumb down the message? Did he compromise his standards in the message? He's spoken of an actor they could understand, though. Okay. He didn't have to become like the world to, to reach the world. That's correct. But he had to know something about the world. He had to know something about different cultures. He had to know something about different ways of living or different standards of living or... Yes, Sharon. Um, I don't know if you know Gary Krause, the, the group piece that's the contributing editor. I'm not familiar. With Global Mission, the church. And um, it's interesting to me that some of the comments you've made this morning about knowing other cultures and meeting people where they are and letting the Holy Spirit, you know, I mean, in other words, we live our lives and we're a witness whether we know it or not. Mm -hmm. 
But um, Gary brings out a, a, an interesting point, um, or maybe, maybe it's subtle, or maybe I just saw it, but I wonder if anybody else did, and that is that I think to some extent Adventists in our little, in our world, in our head, in our knowledge, in our upbringing, we're like a culture too. And we have expectations sometimes that, I don't want to say we're smug about, but that we're very confident. You can say smug. <laughs> I mean, maybe more smug than others, you know. But the, but the point being is that, that we, you know, we have always cultivated the fact that we have the truth, we know the truth, we've explored the truth. We're know. right. Right. Yes. Yeah, we're right. Yeah, I've and been so right. I heard that. into these other cultures, whether it's in our backyard or in Timbuktu on mm-hmm. the other side of the world, um, we want to express these. We want to share them. And we are we are given that commission to mm-hmm. share them, which, again, I think all of that is the right thing to do. But it's hard sometimes to understand that there are others that are just as passionate and concerned and knowledgeable as we are but it's tweaked a little different way. I believe, though, that their love for God is just as sincere as mine is. So I don't want to get into a you know hand-to-hand combat with them, but where is that line that you are able to always be aware of, that I'm not going to step on your toes, that I'm going to reflect what Jesus wants me to reflect? Uh, I mean, to me, it's only about is helping me to recognize it when I see it right in front of my face. And I, and I may not sometimes, but we do have to pray that we're able culturally within our own group. Because I think it's easy right here in this room that we witness to one another and don't really know what, what my person sitting next to me is thinking and believing. And it's just as easy for me to step on their toes as it might be to go step on somebody from the Hindu religion, I might not know something different. I mean, does that make sense? No, I, and, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what he is bringing out, I just thumbed through this. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really feel that, uh, that Gary's trying to get us to understand that. Maybe it's because of their exposure with Global Mission, and they are running into that on a long time. Visit. Didn't mean to go again on a soapbox. Just a thought. No, I, I think that's very well said. Sadly, you, you said Adventism is a culture. I think sadly it's sometimes referred to as a subculture. And, and that shouldn't be all bad. Many of us, well, yeah, okay. You know, many of us are, are are dogmatic in our approach to evangelism instead of, you know, living out the evangelism in our, uh, in our existence and, you know, freely sharing the change that's been wrought in our lives. It's not always easy to do to revisit some of the some of the attitudes and some of the behaviors that um, we displayed prior to the change occurring. I mean, think think about put yourself in Paul's place for a minute, and uh, you're looking out of a crowd of people and seeing the wife of of some husband that he uh, he jailed or. or uh, that, that even that he may have had executed, or seeing some family member uh, that um, you know whose other family member was removed just because of him. Think about how that. Think about how he felt uh, doing that. Uh, it, it couldn't have been easy for him to to revisit those thoughts and behaviors. All he had to do, all he could do, was say, "I'm sorry. This this I was mistaken. This is how I've changed." 
Yes, Linda. Well, even within a call in this room and everywhere, people think entirely differently from each other. That is why we have four Gospels. We have many books of the Bible because some speak to one type of thinking more than others do. And I think the Bible in John says that Jesus didn't have to be, no one had to tell them who they were because he knew them already. And I think that was a real gift of the Holy Spirit to have insight into who you're talking to and what they need to hear. And I think that's something we should be praying for is in every context, in every situation, whoever we're around, we should be praying that the Holy Spirit will give us insight into that person, what they need to hear. And just as a matter of communication skill, it's really important to know your audience and to present something at a level and in a way that is most likely to hit the, the communication listeners' uh, target, so to speak, in a way they understand, in a way they can appreciate, and not meant to build up prejudice, but to undermine prejudice. Thank you. Any other insights on what it means to become all things to all people? The next day's uh, discussion is about the philosophers. You think it could be said that becoming all things to all men is a, is a form of philosophy? I mean, is that something that's just kind of an ideal which philosophers strive for? I'm not sure. Wendell? I think it's a, also a illustration of how you truly love someone else. I had a teacher one time who had a fellow, I had a fellow classmate who had a very strong religious belief about certain restrictions that he could not do dietarily. Our teacher did not hold those same beliefs, but the entire time that pupil was in his classroom, he never deviated from that student's restrictions so that he would not offend them and that he could draw him to Christ. Okay. And to yeah. me, that's an illustration of our love for someone else so much that we're willing to give up whatever it is that we believe is true. To a point. Yeah. Well, no, but he gave up what he believed was he was rightfully his a right to do for the sake of not persecuting or disturbing or whatever this weaker member of the faith. Right, and we see evidence of this in Paul's you know, later in Acts and, and in Colossians and Romans and, you know, we're, again, talking about dietary issues where Paul says, you know, I'm convinced that everything that God has made is clean, but if it causes my brother to stumble, may I never eat meat again. So, you know, here again, another centered focus, just like you, uh, just like you said. So we've examined that being all things to all men means the meeting them. Ashley said it's meeting them where they meeting their needs. Okay. It is um, a focus on others, which I, I think is a, a very valuable insight. Is there any, anything else that I'm missing? Just, just one thought, you know, having a, having a respect for others' beliefs. Mm-hmm gives them a respect for our beliefs and until I can give until I can get somebody to the point where they respect my beliefs I'm never going to win them over to what I believe I think God gives us respect probably that we don't deserve he respects us where we are and he tries to reach us where we are right and we see that in the life of Christ as well I mean he met people's needs if they were hungry they fed, he fed them if they had leprosy he healed them if they were crying, he, he dried their tears. And 
played with the children. Yeah, he met he met their needs. Yes, in the back. That's why I love the statement that says you cannot antagonize and persuade at the same time. And I think Paul was he was an antagonizer to begin with, obviously to the point of killing people. Mm. Because he believed something so strongly that he was willing to, you know, kill them to cleanse the earth or whatever for the cause that he believed was right. But I think in his life, and somehow, and I love the illustration you gave, looking out at those women whose husbands he may have killed, he had to convince them that no longer did he believe that. No longer was he willing to antagonize them or to persuade them. That he would listen to them and love them and give up himself to them. And probably... If our MO as an Adventist organization became, we will not antagonize in order to persuade, we would see some changes. Right. You know, uh, I. It's hard to do. I, it is. It is difficult. You know, I. I have long thought that that tech, the the quote that Christ. Um, when he was talking to the Pharisees, you know, he says, you search the world over to find a convert and to make him twice the son of hell as he was before. I've long thought that that was, that he was talking to Adventism uh, as much as the Pharisees, as difficult as that is to say and, and to to realize. Um, we often we often do that. You know, we find these people to, to convert them and what are we converting them to? Did you have a comment, Chrissy? Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another familiar one and, and one that uh, I often forget in my life. Any other insights on what it means to be all things to all people? I think the whole, like, the over, overall, like, feel through this whole thing is just placing your desires and your thoughts and your... Like your motives, not your motives, but like yourself behind everybody else. It really eradicates selfishness when you really like strongly attempt to abide by these like goals that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You just really cannot think of what you're trying to accomplish right there. You know, you really have to put the other person and the other person's needs and thoughts and ways of thinking above your own. Which is not, I mean, it sounds easy, but it's really not at all. No, it isn't. In the teacher's quarterly, there's a statement here that says, Jesus said that the truth would set us free. As Christians, we have found that the truth Jesus presented to us and the world did indeed set us free. But that doesn't mean all our problems go away. And one of those problems arises from friends, relatives, or business associates who don't like or appreciate our lifestyle and worldview. First of all, what truth was it that set us free? about the character of God. Okay, elaborate, please. How he was. How was he? How is he? Loving and kind. He's kind and forgiving, and he doesn't need books worth of rules and regulations that you have to abide by and limit your walking to a quarter mile on the Sabbath. And <sighs> he, he doesn't... He's loving and forgiving no matter what, huh? Okay, and he's not angry and seeking to put us to death for making mistakes. What is the coming wrath of God? Letting us go to our own ways. 
Oh, here it is. It's from uh, Ellen White, the Acts of the Apostles. The Thessalonian believers were true missionaries. Their hearts burned with zeal for their Savior, who had delivered them from a fear of the, quote, wrath to come. Well, in Matthew thirteen forty, it says, as we, this is Jesus talking, it said, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw he, they will throw them into the fiery furnace, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Well, that sounds like a lot of wrath. Throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not sure I want to open that can of worms. <laughs> let's let's move on to Paul's interaction with the uh, Athenians, the philosophers, and the talkers. Uh, someone read Acts 17, verses 18 through 33, please. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and believe your devotions, I found an altar to this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made by hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, and happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far away, far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much, then, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, We will hear thee again on this matter. Okay. So all departed from among them. Thank you. Anything jumps out at you about this uh, exchange? Several other translators do not say if I see you're very superstitious, they say I see you're very religious. Right. Uh, the version I have says yeah, we, we see you are, quote, religious. 
And since I don't know Greek, then I can't comment on which one is a better translation. It jumps out to me that they were a, a very interesting society because they were open to ideas and they were always seeking knowledge. Okay, excellent. That, uh, that was top of my list as well. I kind of approached this from the Athenians' point of view in that they were seekers of truth. They wanted truth. Now, it's kind of my idea of hell to sit around and talk about things all day long <laughs> and not actually do something, but hey, if it worked for them. But they were open to reason. They were open to ideas. They were open to truth. And how often do we as Adventists, how often are we open to other ideas from other religions or uh, denominations? How, how open are we to discussing things and, and to, to giving credibility to other insights? We're not open. <laughs> Thank you, yes. We're not open to no ideas in our own. Well said, exactly. We're, we're often close to new ways of doing things within Adventism. Thank you, Tina. That's, that's correct. I think we should give a little credit, more credit to Paul, the way he presented the truth to them. Oh, absolutely. And start preaching the way he did to the Jews with the scripture and everything. They would never even give him time to speak to them. They would just close their mind. But the way he approached them was recognizing one of their gods and showing the correlation between his god and their religion and pointing out the similarities in their culture and his culture and showing that they're not so different, that there is still God, greater God, and that he cut their perspectives and their ideas that are more welcome to them, and that way we should do the same. It's not just go out with our Adventist beliefs and our Adventist, but go into the culture. And just like I'm from Russia, and if you go in and tell them that you're vegetarian and try to teach them uh, about not eating meat, the first question most of the Russian people ask you, what's wrong with you, are you sick? You have some kind of condition that you can't eat meat. But if you go to Buddhist countries and explain them that you're vegetarian and that meat is bad, they will actually respect you a lot greater because they hold that and a lot greater and self-control and you could be with that technique you can get a lot more done than in Russian country and it is just the way he presented it made them a lot more open and if we keep the same idea that Paul did is to get to to know people's and their culture first before presenting it we could have a lot more success Thank you. Well said. And I agree. Uh, I, I marvel at the way Paul presented things by complimenting them. You know, I see that you are very religious. Uh, the other version says superstitious. Um, I, I think he began by complimenting them. Uh, he, he acknowledged them as seekers of truth. He pointed out to them things that they could see for themselves. As he wrote in Romans, you know, all you know, God's invisible qualities can be seen through what has been made. So the men are without excuse. So he he uh, revealed them the creator aspect of the quote unknown God, the unseen God. He quoted one of their poets back to them, showing that he was not completely unfamiliar with their culture and their ways of doing things. But he didn't dumb down the message. He did bring up the topic of resurrection, and. I think he knew that that was going to fall on some deaf ears. 
verse 34 says, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. So that probably indicates that several, uh, a few more didn't. Paul was going to let the Holy Spirit do the work. Well, I think, you know, like with that text that we keep going back to, I have become all things to men so that by all possible means I might save some. Some, right. All. Exactly. It's not, you know. Exactly. Yes. We, we all have to interpret what we hear by, you know, our education, our experience, which, you know, an, al- an analogy is, is our filter. Mm-hmm. You know? And some people's filters will get clogged up much faster than others. You know, some people's filter is really fine, and some of it's like, you know, like a, a grate going into the sewer or something. You know? <laughs> That's a great metaphor. <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you have ever heard the uh, the idea that it's okay to go waiting on the Sabbath, but if you're in new positive buoyancy, you're swimming. That's a violation of the Sabbath. Anybody ever hear that? Anybody other than me? Raised on that. Well, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay to ride a bike on the Sabbath, but if you're under power on a motorcycle and having too much fun, then that's not quite. Uh, and a lot of things that develop in our heads are from the way we were raised, our our filter, as it were, and. Yes, some of our filters are more porous than others. That's good. I like that. I might have to use that. Uh, Any other insights onto this discussion that Paul had with the philosophers? One really fast thing. Sorry, I'm almost done. Go ahead. No, absolutely. Um, We've got time to kill. He gave them credit almost, it seems like. He was like, far as I like talking about them being religious, but then he was like, you know, and he said that he was to explain the unknown God rather than belittling them and saying, why would you have an altar for an unknown God? He said he was crediting them, you know, and saying, I'm going to explain this to you now. And I think that's really important. That helps you establish respect rather than belittling. Credit people for what you find something good in them and credit them and then try to reach them. Right. I, I agree. I have a difficult time understanding why people uh, that live back there had to have a God that they could see wood or stone or gold or silver or whatever. Uh, but I imagine they must have had a very difficult time conceptualizing a God that was invisible. You know, or when Moses uh, was was directed to, to approach Pharaoh, God said, tell him, I am sent you. Well, okay, what does that mean? I think we as modern day Christians have a little bit easier time conceptualizing uh, an unseen God, and yet we still develop idolatry. Yes. But do we not make gods out of things that we can see? Sure we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, and not only that, we constrain him with our ideas of what he should be, and we humanize him, give him human qualities. You know, so like when we take the quote, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, yeah, we're going to kill him. <laughs> well, maybe that's not God's vengeance. Maybe God's vengeance is to heal. I think probably some of our idols today, we just don't put the label God on. Uh, again, I agree. You know, I think as Paul says, that greed is idolatry. It's simply another form of idolatry. And it's, none of us are greedy or materialistic in here, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I, I tended to think of their idols, though, as, as you know, yeah, they were, they 
nailed down and worshiped him, but it was a visual image for them to remind them that that's what they believed in. And we have uh, television, internet, we print our books. We have common things that we stamp on all of them that we recognize, the, you know, our world church, the three angels message, you got three angels fly, I mean, just things you recognize that are printed everywhere. They didn't have print, they didn't have TVs, they created things out of rocks and stones that was a reminder. And we tend to worship some of those things. So, Like a cross, maybe? I don't think we're, don't think we're too far apart. Yeah. Well, I, I I agree. That's that's good insight. Yeah, how many Christians worship the cross, a cross, as an icon, wear it as jewelry, or um, put it on bumper stickers or things like that? But yeah, we can't stereotype that and say that that is, you know, they're just making that up. For, for some people, that may, you know, seriously, like, they may, I mean... Maybe that's bad, but it may help them remember. You know. I'm oh, I yeah, I'm not. I know. I'm not. not I'm not judging anybody for doing, but but I'm saying that. Well, it's the it's fallacy saying they're worshiping the cross. I mean, they're not they're not worshiping the cross. The cross is just a symbol of who they are worshiping. You think they're actually sitting there thinking this physical cross is saving me, or do they think the God that this cross represents is saving? Me? Yes. Now, this whole issue, I'm a sixteenth century scholar, so I'm going to bring this in. This whole issue has to do with magical thinking, and we are guilty of that too. Magical thinking is if you go through the motions, if you do the mass, or you go to church on Sabbath, or you um, always pay your tithe, or you, you know, any kind of magical, any kind of habit is magical thinking. Now I've I've taken care of God, Mm -hmm. He's pleased, I've done what He asks. Mm -hmm. And it's taken care of. And that, I think, is the real issue. Whenever we get into that kind of thinking that I can just do this and I'm okay. Right. Oh, I thank you. I agree. If you talk to my sister, she was married to a Catholic for 12 years. The cross itself became an object of worship, almost more so than who was crucified on it. So I'm not saying that all Catholics worship the cross is an idol, nor am I saying that all Christians worship the cross as an idol, but it is in danger of becoming an idol. Most of the, I mean, what you see just on TV or books, I mean, most of those crosses, I think, in the Catholic history have Jesus on the cross, don't they? I mean, they usually are the ones that display Christ on the cross. So, I mean, we can become uh, accused of worshiping the cross and worshiping the cross and not do it in the right way. Oh, I, thank I you. Had, I, I exactly. I was not raised in Adventist. I had a grandmother who had her Bible all the time. She was fine if she had her Bible. Now, she, the Bible, I don't know what it meant to her because she didn't say, but she kept saying to me, as long as I have my Bible, I'm okay. Well, you see, she was thinking of it in a different way than what I think she was. Thank you for that insight. And we see, you know, we've seen evidence of the Ten Commandments becoming an idol. A few years ago, when the judge in Alabama wanted to keep them in the courthouse, there were protesters out there saying, this is our God, you can't remove it. Well, it was a block of marble. It's the picture you have of God, the meaning you have of God behind the symbolism. You tend to act out your picture of God to other people and at other people what you form of God 
I agree. Well, we have run out of time. Let's close with prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the insights today. I want to ask that you continue to bless this class collectively and individually. And I also want to ask that when you come again, that we're all standing ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend.